All right, Deuteronomy 22, and we are going to read together verses 13 to 30. And so because this is the word of our Lord and this is the Lord's day, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading, the hearing, and by God's grace, the embracing of the word of God. Deuteronomy 22, beginning in verse 13, Moses writes as he was carried along by the Spirit. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city and the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her, lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. You shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her, and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her for all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Church family, the grass withers, The flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated.
Here we go. If you come to First Baptist Powell on a regular basis, you know that the type of preaching we regularly practice is oftentimes known as expository or expositional preaching. This predates me. Uh, Pastor Phil practiced this kind of preaching for 33 years of his gospel ministry here at the church, and perhaps before him there were others. I don't know exactly. But this kind of preaching means that we most oftentimes take a book of the Bible or a portion of scripture and we walk through that portion of scripture verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph. In this approach, the preaching, the biblical text shapes the sermon. And so oftentimes, though not always the case, oftentimes the sermon itself is actually given an outline by the text. The text becomes the outline. In fact, I've known expositional preachers who preach without notes primarily because they suggested that the text itself provided the outline. In my preaching classes, actually, I had to preach without notes. I carry notes to the pulpit now. I don't always stick to them. But I do take notes to the pulpit. More, I think, for your benefit than for mine. So the text oftentimes shapes the sermon itself or the structure of the sermon or the homiletical flow and and pieces and bits of the sermon. But additionally, I want you to miss this, in expository preaching, the topics are chosen for the preacher. It becomes terribly difficult to ignore topics as they surface in the text. So for example, this morning... If you were paying attention and I had gotten up and started chapter 23, at some point, someone would have asked me, Pastor, you never preached on verses 13 to 30 of Deuteronomy chapter 22. And they would have been wise to ask this question. And so expository or expositional preaching selects the topics for the preacher. And one of the reasons I love expositional preaching, there are a number of reasons I love it, but one of the reasons I love it is the preacher is not as heavily influenced by his own preferences or whims or reactions. We are still influenced by our preferences and whims and reactions. Don't misunderstand. But expositional preaching helps to mitigate these tendencies Instead, we are called to be led by the direction of the divine text. And yet, because of the presence of God with and for his people, the presence of God with and for his people here at First Baptist Powell, there are times, and I love these moments, this is why I say all of this, there are times in expository preaching when the timing is such that it seems to have been planned by the pastor. If you are keeping abreast of recent controversies within the Southern Baptist Convention, not all of you are, some of you are. Others of you will after this sermon, perhaps. But many of you likely know that the Southern Baptist Convention, of which we are a part here at First Baptist Powell, is in the middle of a difficult conversation in response to an investigation regarding sexual abuse. This investigation took place over the previous year as a result of, I might add this, this is important, as a result of the thousands of messengers, which is another way of referring to representatives sent by, commissioned by local churches. So the investigation took place as a result of these messengers voting in affirmation of 
emotion last annual meeting. I was a part of that. Some of you were a part of that. And so, by the way, when you read that the Southern Baptist Convention has been exposed, that's true. But the Southern Baptist Convention has been exposed by the Southern Baptist Convention. That's an important caveat. So, for those of you who don't know some of the results, and I've just intimated them, the investigation recently revealed that or what many really suspected beforehand, and this is why we voted on it, that some leaders within the SBC are guilty of sexual abuse and that some of those leaders, along with others, and this is really where a lot of it began to surface as incriminating and has become quite a debacle in SBC life, those leaders who were guilty of sexual abuse and other leaders failed to respond to sexual abuse in a way that honored Christ and protected the victims. So there was a failure to respond well to the sexual sins that have characterized humanity in part since Genesis 3. I had not planned to preach a sermon on responding well to sexual sin as a result of that investigation. Perhaps some pastors did that. Perhaps some pastors planned a series or planned a sermon to respond to the investigation and the results of the investigation in the SBC. I'm not one of those pastors. I planned to walk through Deuteronomy and to preach the next portion of text. Well, so in keeping with the order of Deuteronomy, apparently this is what our good father has planned for us. Fascinating, isn't it? Shouldn't surprise us. But what he has for us this Lord's Day morning is to look at the text. This is not a sermon on the investigation. It, it won't be. But it will be related to it. Why? Because that's the thrust of Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look together at how to respond well to sexual sin. That's really the theme of this section in the book of Deuteronomy. And we're going to unpack this text where God instructs his people in how to respond well to sexual sin in three stages, if you're taking notes, okay? So you can jot these down. And we've used this outline before because it's a prominent outline that does oftentimes grow out of biblical texts. First of all, we're going to look together at the problem. And we've already given you the problem, but we're going to unpack it just a bit more. This will be a short section of the sermon. The front porch is a small front porch this morning. So first, the problem. What is the problem in the text? What is the problem God himself is addressing in the text? Secondly, we're going to look together at the solution to this problem. This is the bulk of the sermon. The solution will be the bulk of the sermon because there are so many instances given in the text. Six, to be precise. Six occasions or scenarios that are given in the text and we're going to try to say something about all of them. We won't unpack them all equally. And then finally, after looking together at the problem and the solution, we are going to conclude our time together with a few reflections. Probably three reflections. I say probably because I shared with you, I bring notes to the pulpit. But there are times when I don't allow the notes to become too cumbersome. But I plan at this point on giving you, on giving you three, three reflections on the text. 
three reflections on the text, okay? Problem, solution, and reflections so that we can live well as God's people in between Christ's first coming and his second coming, empowered by the Spirit of God. Let's begin by simply stating the problem, can we? Let's do that. We're going to state the problem. Here it is. Even in the land of Canaan, Israel would be plagued by sexual sin. Even when they arrived in the land, the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and their descendants, even when they got there, they would be plagued by sexual sin. Recall, as we've mentioned many times throughout our journey in Deuteronomy, that this book consists of Moses' last sermon. Some would suggest last sermons, plural, and perhaps that's accurate. The people of Israel are on the plains of Moab and they've not entered the land of Canaan just yet. And so 120-year-old Moses stands up to preach the word of God one final time. And boy, does he preach. And he preaches in such a way that he serves as an instrument through which God instructs the people of Israel to live well in the land of Canaan. God is fulfilling his promises. The time has finally arrived. They had spent decades wandering about in the wilderness since they had left Egypt. A previous generation had died in the wilderness, but now finally, at long last, they are going to obtain the promises of God and the fulfillment of those promises. It would be tempting for an Israelite and perhaps even a first-time Bible reader to believe that in the land of Canaan, everything will finally be the way it should be. If they can just get to the land, everything will be better. But built into the instruction that God gives to the people of Israel as they're entering the land is an assumption, is a problem. And that problem bears testimony that the land of Canaan was not the final destination for God's people. Built into the law, built into the Torah, which is contained in the first five books, as it were, the Old Testament, built into God's instruction is this anticipation of a better day. Because even when Israel arrives in the land of Canaan, things will not be the way they should be. They will still be plagued by overt and egregious sexual sin. The Apostle Paul makes an insightful observation regarding God's law in 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. I mentioned this passage to you a few weeks ago, but I'll mention it to you again and quote it. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 is key to understanding how to read the law, how to understand the law in the Old Testament. Paul writes these words, the law is not laid down for the just. It's not given for righteous people. Goes on to say, but the law is given for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers. The law is given, verse 10, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, 
liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In other words, what's the Apostle Paul saying? In other words, it is the ongoing presence of sin that necessitates God's law. In fact, God's law assumes the presence of sin. And what we find, and we're not going to turn to these passages, what we find, for example, in Romans 7 and 8, the law isn't the problem. We're the problem. But the law is God's gracious and benevolent response, as it were, to that problem. The law does serve to mitigate that problem to some degree. It it serves to put parameters around the problem. It serves to identify the problem. But we're going to see, actually, the bankruptcy of the law a bit later. It is inadequate, finally, and insufficient. So this is the case throughout our text. This problem permeates Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 30. In fact, it permeates all of God's law. Look at me at verses 13 and 14. So much in the text, by the way. So much here in this text because of the various scenarios. Verses 13 and 14, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. And as the text goes on to describe, this man is slandering his wife. He's lying. This is a false accusation. And so what does this assume? This assumes the presence of sin. God is not instructing a man to do this. He's actually saying, this is going to happen. It shouldn't happen, but it will happen. And when it does, here are ways that you should handle it for my glory and the good of Israel. Look down at verse 22, just to pick a couple of more. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, God is not instructing adultery. He's assuming it. The scenario is one of sexual lust and the gratification of lust. The marriage covenant is being broken and God now provides instruction for the lawless on account of the presence of sin. And then finally, we'll look at one more briefly. Verse 25. If in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and notice the language and the man seizes her and lies with her. This is rape. Rape would still characterize Israel in the land of Canaan. If the law does anything, brothers and sisters, hear me. Church, hear me. Christians, hear me. If the law of God does anything, it is to suggest to you that things in the land, the people in the land of Canaan are not the way they ought to be. Humanity is not the way it ought to be. Now, there are various distinctions. I should say this. There are various distinctions within God's law. Some suggest there is such a thing as case laws, and those case laws ought to be distinguished from, for example, the Decalogue or the uh, Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And I do think that's the case. I do believe that there is a kind of overarching authority and long-lasting authority to the Decalogue, as it were. And I think Deuteronomy is framed after the Ten Commandments in part, to a degree. Nevertheless, even the Ten Commandments assume the presence of sinful desires. 
you shall not commit adultery. You don't have to command someone who is perfectly pure in heart not to commit adultery. Someone who's finally restored when Jesus Christ returns. Well, that's a topic for another day. So there's the problem. What about the solution? And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time together and hopefully leave a little bit of time for some reflections. I think it's possible that during this solution to get um, into a kind of plotting rhythm. It's not always going to be easy because of all the scenarios. And so we'll be jumping around just a bit. So bear with me and let's work through this text together. Let me state the solution to you first because the solution has three parts. And I want you to be able to see and identify those three parts throughout the various scenarios provided in the biblical text, okay? Here's the solution. In response to sexual sin, Israel was to first protect the vulnerable. In response to sexual sin, Israel was to protect the vulnerable. Secondly, Israel was to punish the guilty. And third, in addition to protecting the vulnerable and punishing the guilty, Israel was to purge the evil from their midst. God's people were to protect the vulnerable, punish the guilty, and as a result, purge the evil from Israel's midst. And these facets are seen throughout the text. Let me give you an example. In the case of a husband who accuses his newly wedded wife of sexual activity prior to marriage. And so this is the case, back to that first instance in the text, this is the case where the man marries the woman and then he comes up with this accusation. When I married her, she was not a virgin. I know this can get sticky. We have many different ears in the room. I'm going to allow parents and grandparents to make decisions concerning definitions. But we have to deal with what's in the text, hopefully in a way that's appropriate. And so this man accuses his newly wedded wife of sexual immorality prior to marrying him. And he discovers it. He says, on the marriage night, in the night of consummation. So God instructs in verses 15 and following, look with me at the text. Here's what you're to do. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. Verse 16, and the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry. He hates her. He's accused her of misconduct saying, I did not find in her and your daughter, rather, evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Apparently, it was common to have evidence of virginity. And there is some debate as to what this is. There are a number of different possibilities. But he was to provide the evidence. And if he provided the evidence and it was made clear that this man was falsely accusing his wife, verse 18, then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. He was to be flogged. And they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman. Why? Because he has brought a bad name, shame ra, a bad name on the virgin of Israel, on a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife and he may not divorce her all his days. Now, 
I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think, how in the world is this protecting the vulnerable? On the surface, it may not seem that the wife is protected, right? I mean, this poor woman has to remain married to this guy. What would that have been like? The man who tried to lie and get you killed. Falsely accused her. Now he's commanded to remain married to her all his days. So how in the world is this protection for the vulnerable? Well, this instruction only makes sense, brothers and sisters, in which, in a context rather, in which one of the most vulnerable social positions for a woman was to be divorced on account of alleged sexual immorality. That was an extremely dangerous position to be in. What that would have done essentially to a woman at this time and in this culture is that would have left her undesirable by anyone else, open to various other cases of potential rape, to be abused and used for various other reasons, left without any means of providing for her own physical welfare and so perhaps even forced into a kind of activity that would in some ways provide Additionally, something that gets lost on us at times, remember, this is the day before contraception. So, the welfare of the child would have been jeopardized as a result of this union, sexual union, and then a divorce. Now, the child was forever jeopardized. And it would be likely, of course, the child wouldn't even survive. So, so many things are happening culturally, socially in the text. And again, don't miss this. The law does not give you the ideal. Don't miss that. God is not saying, this is what pleases me finally and fully. When Jesus Christ returns, this is how it's going to be. When a man falsely accuses his wife of sexual morality. No! This assumes Genesis 3. And it assumes Christ has not yet come either the first time or either the second time. So this was indeed a way to protect this poor woman, to provide for her and to provide for a potential newborn son or daughter that would have resulted from this sexual union. And so for his false accusation, The husband was to be punished. He was to receive a whipping and must then pay 100 shekels of silver to his father-in-law for doing harm. I think I read this text, actually interpret this text as for doing harm to the name of the family. He lied about her, and as a result, he lies about the family as a whole. On the other hand, if the husband's accusation was true, verse 21 informs us that the woman was to be stoned So in other words, if she had committed sexual immorality prior to this moment, she had shown herself to be sexually unfaithful before marriage, whether this was through fornication or an adulterous relationship with some other woman's husband, she was to be stoned for what God's word calls an outrageous thing that she has done in Israel and in her father's house. And the verse ends with this phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Shocking to us, isn't it? Shocking to us, I would suggest to you, in part, because we have been so 
catechized. One would maybe suggest desensitized to the seriousness of sexual sin. The language, by the way, of purging the evil from your midst occurs three times in the text. In our text, purge the evil from your midst. And so remember, that solution that God provides, Israel was to protect the vulnerable, punish the guilty, and therefore purge the evil from their midst. And this happens a few times in the text. And when this happens, what's being communicated is the guilty party is actually stoned to death. By the way, the church after the first coming of Christ is not authorized to distribute capital punishment. Since the church is not a geopolitical nation, but a spiritual people whose spiritual authority is exercised through the preaching of the gospel, through baptism, through the administration of the Lord's Supper, through church membership, and so forth. And so we exercise authority, but it's a spiritual authority. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul will take passages like this and quote them, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, when someone who is unrepentant and caught in egregious sin, so this is egregious public sin, and they're unrepentant, and they're members of the church, the Apostle Paul, of course, and others, consistent with the Lord's instructions in Matthew 18, says, put them out of the church. This is the process of church discipline that climaxes or terminates in excommunication. So he quotes passages like this and applies them to excommunication. That's one of the ways the church wields spiritual authority, not through capital punishment. Then in verse 22, God addresses the case of a consensual adulterous relationship. This is, this text is exhausting. It's exhausting, and it should be, because this is not the way it should be. You're going to spend about 50 minutes in it, maybe. I spent a week in it, and uh, it's exhausting. And here, verse 22, you have a consensual adulterous relationship. A married man or woman participates in a sexual relationship outside of their marriage. In this case, both the man and the woman were to die. And this was also the case when a man entered a consensual sexual relationship with a woman who was betrothed. As the text goes on to say, verses 23 and 24. And so verses 23 and 24 are very similar to verse 22. In one case, verse 22, there's marriage. The marriage has been consummated, it's official. But in verses 23 and 24, there's betrothal. But betrothal was treated just like marriage in the law of God. You were already pledged officially to this man or this woman. In fact, In verses 23 and 24, we are told this occurs in the city. And so a man has a sexual relationship with a woman who is betrothed to another man. And it happens in the city. Why in the world does that matter? I mean, in the city, those of us who are country folk may like that, right? Because we demonize cities at times. But that's not the point here. No, houses were closely adjoined, walls were thin. There was not such a thing as privacy. 
You heard everything. You heard conversations going on in the next house. You didn't just hear yelling. Everybody was a part of the kind of village family, as it were, tribal family. And so that's the point here. If this kind of relationship happened in the city, they were surrounded by people. There was an intentionality to be quiet about it. What the text is describing, don't miss this, is consent. That's what the text is describing. The text is describing a sexually immoral relationship in which both the man and the woman participated. And in this case, both were to be stoned and removed from Israel. Now look with me at verses 25 to 27. But if in the open country, a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, So a similar relationship as far as the woman's betrothed, she's already officially pledged to another man. The man, this other man meets now, this woman who's already betrothed. The man seizes her. Now that is an important word. The man seizes her and lies with her. Then only the man who lay with her shall die. Notice verse 26, you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense, punishable by death. And notice what God does. He describes it like that of a person being murdered. This person's just like someone who's been attacked and murdered by a neighbor. Verse 27, because he met her in the open country and though the betrothed woman cried for help, there was none to rescue her. Now again, that's just a way of describing rape. This was not consensual. This was a man forcing himself on a woman. And the description of this man raping this woman who was betrothed to another man is so very strong. Hehatsik which is a form of a Hebrew verb, hatsak, which means to be strong. But hatsik is a way of modifying the verb, as it were, to communicate strength that is forced on somebody else. So, translation could be something like, he overpowers her, abuses her, rapes her. That's the idea. And it's described in the open country. The location doesn't matter as much as this woman is innocent. This woman's innocent. And no one rescued her from it. The man guilty of rape was to receive death. No questions asked. And the woman was to be treated as a victim. Boy, this is highly relevant for us right now. When someone, when someone is abused by someone else, the abuser is guilty and should be punished. The abused is innocent in the way a murder victim is innocent. That is extremely important. There's this dangerous narrative. There are a number of dangerous narratives 
and I don't have time to unpack them all. But there's a dangerous narrative, and I find it in evangelical circles. And the narrative goes something like this. When there's been sexual abuse, there is the assumption that the one who claims to have been abused actually carries some culpability or guilt. That's not in the text. No, there is such a scenario where the one who is abused is to be treated as an innocent victim. Is to be ministered to, protected, loved on, shielded. And the church ought to be the most caring and kind and benevolent refuge for such a person. This side of resurrection. Right out of the text. By the way, before the Me Too movement, before the Me Too movement, There are times when movements have a way in God's mercy, I would say. In God's mercy, we talked about this in Membership Matters class this morning. I won't tell you all the details of that particular conversation. But we talked about a particular movement that sheds some light on some failures. And God uses it. And I think this is taking place all of the time in God's mercy. And it's happening, doubtless, currently for us in the Southern Baptist Convention But what matters with regard to this particular text is the man guilty of rape is punished. The woman who is abused, who has been attacked and overpowered, she is treated as a victim. In addition to verse 30, where we simply have a prohibition against incest broadly, we're not going to talk a lot about that because there's very little actually in the text. Verse 30 just makes the statement In fact, you can glance at verse 30 quickly with me. We'll read it. That'll make me feel better. A man shall not take his father's wife. That's, by the way, that language is marry his father's wife. To take a wife is to marry a woman. So a man shall not marry his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. And this is just a euphemistic way of talking about sexual immorality. Probably a reference to a man marrying his stepmother. Probably. Probably. Probably also a reference to a man whose father has passed away. But it's just a broad, as it were, statement as well to be read alongside of other passages in Scripture against incest. But in addition to that verse, we find one more incident in verses 28 and 29. And this is a challenging one before we get to our reflections. Perhaps we'll have a few moments then at the end to reflect on this. Verses 28 and 29 These verses describe a case in which a man forces himself on a young woman who is neither betrothed to another man nor married. And so it's similar in this sense. It's rape. But it's dissimilar in this sense. The woman who is the rape victim is not married or betrothed. Notice the same language as in verse 25. He meets a virgin, seizes her, and lies with her. Hatsik, same language, overpowers her. Rather than demanding that the man be killed. Now this gets very uncomfortable, as it should. As it should. Rather than demanding the man be killed, he must marry the woman. Unthinkable for us. 
In other words, he must pay the bridal price of 50 shekels of silver to the family of the woman and spend the rest of his life providing for her. That's the idea. Remember, remember where we are in our cultural moment and where this was in a cultural moment. And remember the chasm that exists between the two socially and with respect to privileges afforded to particular genders or in this case, a particular gender, the female gender. This feels like adding permanent insult to sexual injury, but remember, we have grown accustomed to modern opportunities. And we're thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. Church, I hope you're thankful for that. But what this instruction essentially accomplished was this, the preservation of the welfare of the woman, just like we talked about a few moments ago. It, it confirmed, as it were, solidified and concretized her future welfare, physical welfare. She may not have had much of a relationship with this man, but she remained married to him, which meant he was obligated to provide for her, obligated by the community to provide for her, Moreover, he was obligated to provide for a potential child that was born because of this immoral act of his. He didn't just thrust himself on a woman. Walk away. He signed himself up for the rest of his life. It tended to mitigate this And notice what it also does, and we've got to move on soon, I know. What it also does is it places sex in the only context in which it is proper within a permanent marital relationship between a man and a woman. That's what it does. What is God saying? No, sex is not to be enjoyed outside of a marital relationship, a permanent marital relationship. And so, you just signed yourself up, pal. Ideal? Heavens no. This woman was permanently harmed. But I would suggest to you, not by God's instruction, but by a sinner. And God, God's instruction provided some mitigation to the repercussions of that sin in this context prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. We've seen the problem. Is the problem clear to anyone else? After walking through Deuteronomy 22... Even in the land, Israel would be plagued by sexual sin. We could expand this. Humanity is still plagued by sexual sin. We've seen the solution. God provided this solution to mitigate their sin and its consequences. They were to protect the vulnerable, punish the guilty, and purge the evil from their midst. Now let's conclude with a few reflections. First, we're going to come full circle God's law was and remains inadequate to remedy the problem of sin. 
Let me say that again. God's law, his instructions was or were and remain inadequate to finally remedy the problem of our sin. And Deuteronomy will continue to bear witness to the inadequacy and insufficiency of the law to save sinners. The law could punish sinners. The law could reveal sin. The law could even help mitigate the consequences of the presence of sin. But the law could not and cannot forgive sin and transform sinners. And Deuteronomy shouts here. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can forgive sin and transform sinners. Only Christ can remedy the fundamental problem that has plagued humanity since Genesis chapter three. And he has done so by means of his incarnation. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about a God who did not save from a distance. We're talking about a God who came near to save, who became what he wanted to save. To the point at which on the cross, he's described in this way. Becoming sin in 2 Corinthians 5. What does this mean? No, no, he didn't become a sinner, technically, but sin was imputed to Christ. And he was treated as a sinner, bearing our penalty on the cross. So that on the third day, God in his power raised Jesus Christ, his son, his incarnate son, from the dead bodily. Christ appeared to many, proclaiming his glorious victory, his death and resurrection. And then he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father, praying for his people until the day comes when he returns. And sin will be no more. No more adultery. No more lust. No more pornography. No more fornication. No more broken marriages. No more abuse. No more rape. It's done away with when all things are summed up in Christ Jesus when he returns. Friends, he must be your hope. The law can instruct, the law can illuminate, the law can warn, but it cannot save you. And your obedience to any instruction is woefully inadequate to save you. Trust in Christ this morning. Place your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. Doubtless there are people in this room who are on both sides of the guilt scale, as it were, in relationship to some of the particular sins expressed here. But let me submit to you that at root, at root, we all share the same fundamental problem the problem of idolatry, 
the problem of arrogance, the problem of refusing to submit to the God who made us. And this is precisely why Christ has come to rescue us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the Apostle Paul was able to say, of whom I am foremost. So, if you don't know Christ, trust him this morning, lean into him, embrace him in faith. And if that's where you are, you have any questions about this, any questions about this and how it relates to Jesus Christ, any questions about what you've experienced personally, perhaps you've been personally harmed by other sinners, personally attacked, it would be an absolute privilege to speak with you and pray with you and come alongside of you. Would you consider reaching out to us at some point or even you're welcome to stay afterward. There is going to be a pastor as you leave the main worship center to the left. There's a room located on the right out there called Crossroads and there's a pastor in there that would love to visit with you and pray with you and come alongside of you seeking to serve this glorious savior who actually has the ability to transform sinners. Second, Second reflection. That was one reflection. Two, sex is to be enjoyed exclusively within the context of a permanent relationship between a man and a woman called marriage. Let me say that again. There was a time when this was not controversial. That time is not today. Sex is to be enjoyed exclusively within the context of a permanent relationship between a man and a woman called marriage. If anything has been utterly abandoned in the 21st century as passe or naively old-fashioned, it's this, right? It's this. We're reading a book right now few of us, Pastor Tim actually started this. Uh, Pastor Tim invited me and, and a couple of other brothers in the church to read a book together called Strange New World by Carl Truman. It's a smaller version, not really a version necessarily, but it, similar concepts, a smaller version of a previous book he wrote that's a larger book. This book, Strange New World, is only about 185 pages, fairly digestible, somewhat challenging at times, I should say that. Um, it is a book that, that personally, I'll, I'll tell you this, I've enjoyed it, enjoyed maybe the best way of describing this. I've been enriched by it to such a degree that I have considered some way we could even hand it out or offer it at a reduced cost. But this fits within what Truman is offering in that particular book. Things have changed so much. How have we, how have we gone from assuming what is referred to now as traditional marriage Perhaps we should just call it marriage. What has been called now traditional marriage, we've, we've gone from assuming that just a couple of generations ago to now, when you promote traditional marriage, I hope you understand the air quotes because it is the only marriage. And I don't offer that to you out of arrogance. I don't think I offer that to you because I am bound to the word of God God. 
we've gone from assuming traditional marriage to now, if you have the audacity to suggest that is marriage and that sex is only to be enjoyed between a man and a woman in the context of a permanent relationship called marriage, you're labeled as hateful and an insidious infection to society. So many things we can talk about here, we don't have time to talk about them. But I will tell you what I shared with Membership Matters class this morning. The church has been here before. There was a time when the church was a largely misunderstood, persecuted minority. I happened to spend a fair amount of time in those eras and the church did just fine in that context. And I would submit to you that we will do just fine by God's grace in the days ahead, equipped with the word of God and charity, authentic love for what is best for our neighbor. Because what is best for our neighbor is what the creator says is best for our neighbor. Third, I'm doing all these in injustice, I know. Third, at First Baptist Powell, we must be a holy people. How? By the Spirit of God, not in our own strength, through the gospel, but we must be a holy people, a people who recognize and and live as people who've come to know a loving and holy God. We must be a holy people characterized by, and we're going to run through those again just to mention them, protecting the sexually vulnerable. Appropriately and sufficiently disciplining the sexually guilty. I've modified the word there because there has been a change in redemptive history. But we should appropriately and sufficiently discipline the sexually guilty and by extending the gospel to all extending the gospel to all because that is how we become, as it were, holy people. That is the means whereby we are transformed into people who bear the characteristics of our heavenly father. This happens in part when we partner with other ministries as well. Just to mention a couple like Street Hope. If you don't know about Street Hope, you need to get to know Street Hope. And in my opinion, you need to give to Street Hope if you're able to. Choices Resource Center which, by the way, both of which are directed by members in our church family. Tremendous. What a privilege it is to see members of First Baptist Palace serving in these ways. There are many others I could mention. Those are just two that popped into my head. So we partner with these ministries. We serve alongside of these ministries. We receive increased awareness about the dangers of sexual sin. And we trust in and lean into the word of God and extend the gospel throughout the whole process. But I do want you to notice gospel forgiveness should not result in sacrificing the vulnerable. That's not forgiveness. There is a deficiency in our understanding of forgiveness, I think. There's an overrealized eschatology in our understanding of forgiveness. Things are not yet the way they ought to be. Gospel grace is not leniency. Gospel grace is not leniency in which sin never has consequences in this life. That's not, that's not gospel grace. 
In fact, gospel grace is transformative. There's genuine transformation and change in the one who receives God's grace in Christ. And then finally, we'll close with this thought. This is a sub-point under the third reflection. This is not a fourth reflection. (laughs) And I know I've really kept you long today and you're so kind and you've not protested and run for the door. Transformation will never be final in this life. Never. John Wesley was a good brother. In many ways, he was wrong on this. This means that we must wisely take measures to protect one another from sin. And even, by the way, sin that resides in our own hearts. I'm also interested in protecting others from me. because of the transformative power of gospel in my life, I hope. We must protect one another from sin's repercussions, and especially those who are more vulnerable. Always keeping this in mind. We're on journey together. And the journey doesn't end, as it were, until the coming of Jesus Christ a second time, when all things are made new. So let's close with some comforting words from one of our 16th century mentors, Martin Luther. He describes this life, and here's how he describes this life, and it just served as a comfort to me this week. Quote, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. Luther goes on to say, we are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a heavy topic. And to be frank, if I can just confess this before your people this morning, one that I would not select. But believe you selected for us in your kindness. You avoid nothing because you love us. Would you meet us in our brokenness? Would you protect? Would you appropriately punish and discipline Would you kindly transform through the gospel? And would you preserve us, your church, through Christ and by the Spirit until he returns? We pray this in hope that the day is coming when we are finally like him because we will have seen him as he is. In his name we pray, amen.